Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Thank you for seeing me today, Father. How can I help you, child? I'm having a crisis of faith. (laughs) Doubt is just a pothole on the road to faith. Believe in things, and you shall have them. What is the nature of your crisis, child? Father, I, I can't believe. It's not butter. Apostate! You shall roast in the flaming safflower oil of Lucifer! Please, Father! I'm... I'm sorry, child. It's, it's just believing it's not butter, even though it seems for all the world like butter, is the essence of faith. What the Bible calls prayer, thou can spreadest on thy toast. How can I begin the road back to spiritual wholeness? Hmm, how about, gee, your hair smells terrific. Thank you. You know, I don't even wash my hair all the time because it's, it's locked and... No, no, no. Gee, your hair smells terrific is the name of a shampoo. I don't understand. You're deluded and full of doubt. Look inside yourself and see the place where it's not butter. It's not butter. It's not butter. It's not butter. Yes. But what if it is? Get out! See, this is why the church is losing followers. Let's get ready for a show about what really is butter. And now he injured himself trying to act out both parts in Last Tango in Paris, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that part uh, of the butter story today. I, at least I don't think so. I hope not, actually. But anyway, yes, I can't believe it's not butter. I've always believed that I can't believe it's not butter. And gee, your hair smells ter- terrific. Are kind of linked products somehow. They're the only complete sentence products I can think of. But we're not talking about shampoo today either. We're talking about butter. Uh, this is our salute to, our tribute to uh, butter. Uh, and uh, joining us in studio, we're so lucky we have, I mean, really, the person who did write the, the Bible of butter, uh, Elaine Kosrova, uh, author of Butter, a History, a former pastry student at uh, the Culinary Institute of America and a former test kitchen editor at Country Living Magazine. Uh, you did. You wrote the, why did you write a book about butter? Why, is it just as a chef, as a cook, you felt that strongly? Well, the short answer is that one did not exist. Someone mm-hmm. had yes. to write a book about butter. Uh, but I really was inspired actually by the science and craft of butter making because before I wrote this book, I was the editor of a cheese magazine called Culture. It's a national cheese magazine. It's still out there. Mm-hmm. And so I was behind the scenes in the dairy world a lot for about five years, and I was trying different kinds of butter. They were higher fat, some were whey butters, cultured butters, Um, some were waxy and some were greasy and some were sweeter than others. And I was really kind of astonished. Like butter is essentially one ingredient, cream, I thought, you know, give or take salt. And so, you know, what was going on here? Why Why was I seeing such nuances in the butter world? And so I started to delve into the craft and science. And that kind of naturally led me down the path of history. And then I was like, wow, I, I, I can't believe the impact that butter has had on cultures around the world and vice versa, cultures impacting butter and butter making. So 
I saw I, I went out to get a book on butter, and there wasn't one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So first of all, I want to talk, want to talk about that history. So yeah. before there's history, there's butter, right? I mean, Neolithic people, Stone Age butter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, we'll never know the exact year time. You know, we're talking at least ten thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So you, if you follow the domestication of animals, mm-hmm. that's where you see the butter trail begin. So we're uh, talking about a yak or something like that? We're not talking about a cow, probably. We're not talking about cow because they were one of the yeah. last animals to be domesticated. So yak, goat, sheep, probably more likely goat and sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the Tibetan plateau area and, and the kind of um, herding that was happening there even 15,000 years ago, it's likely there was yak butter right. very early on. And, and I mean, <laughs> you know, you posit a couple of theories in the book. Um, I mean, basically what we're talking about is... The shaking of a dairy product, yes. right? Somehow just, or other, yeah. Just agitation. Yeah, that's all you need is agitation. And we surmise that um, the earliest butters, uh, the earliest uh, butters, were made actually by accident. Uh, probably the shepherd was carrying the milk. It would have been whole milk, mm-hmm. very kind of naturally cultured, a little fermented, in an animal sack, perhaps on his back or perhaps on the back of a mule or something. So it's rocking back and forth as he's going up and down, you know, the the paths, the valleys. And lo and behold, he opens the sack and there are these beautiful golden, well, in the the case of goat and sheep, they would have still been white. They wouldn't have been golden pieces of butter, but still they would have been these morsels, these rich, delicious morsels of fat. They wouldn't have been gold because there wouldn't be beta beta carotene in... It has to do with the way the animals store beta carotene. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, in cows, the animals store beta carotene, which um, transfers to the milk, mm. which transfers to the butter, whereas in sheep and goats, the animals convert beta carotene to vitamin A, mm-hmm. and that goes into the milk, and vitamin A is colorless. Right. So actually, when you answer the question, which mm. some people may, may be thinking uh, right now, why is milk white and butter yellow if you don't add anything, mm-hmm. you essentially answer also the question of what is butter, right? Butter is things that were formerly separate coming together. Yes. Yes. Well, you have the fat in butter is is the fat that's in milk and mm. it's it's invisible until you agitate it. And you break little mm-hmm. membranes when you're agitating it, right? Exactly. That's yeah. really the whole goal of agitation in butter making whether you're using a food processor or a giant industrial machine. You, you there's all these little tiny membranes that cloak the fat molecules and you want to break those, and that causes the fats to come together, coalesce. Now, I, I, I want to talk about some of the, well, let's, let's get right to it, because I think this stuff is fascinating. So there's lots of very primal <clears throat> foods, but it's hard to think of another primal food that has had other uses besides eating and, and uses connected to sacrament uh, and to art, uh, as much as mm. is the case of butter. So mm. I think we have to get into that a little bit. Um, well, let, let's just pick an example. I mean, t- mm-hmm. I happen to have spent a lot of time hanging around with Tibetan monks for some reason in my life, oh. but uh, but I never saw them do the butter sculpture. Mm-hmm. Talk about the Tibetan butter sculpture. Mm. Yes. So that's one example of how butter has been used, and this is universally, especially in the ancient times, as a tool for worship and for ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I saw this in my research. You know, the Tibetans are one example, and that's a really great example because it continues today, yeah. Tibetan butter sculpting. Um, but I do want to make the point that it was many, there were other cultures doing uh, similar mm-hmm. kinds of rituals using butter. 
the Tibetans, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, they make what's called tormas. These are sculptures mm-hmm. that, that and I guess you're familiar with, yeah. Colin, right? You've seen them. So they can be small. They can be large. Uh, they're made out of butter, which is mixed with flour generally to make mm. a paste. And in Tibet, they would be naturally colored with, with plant pigments. But uh, generally today, because so many of the Tibetan monks are exiled to mm. southern India, they're using um, butter mixed with margarine, mixed with wax, mis- right, things that are a little more... They're in hotter places, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So, And they also use uh, oil pigments, you know, um, paint pigments. But the practice is the same. The idea is to create this gorgeous sculpture that becomes part of their altar that can uh, represent numerous deities, depending mm-hmm. on what the intention is of the prayer or the prayer festival. And some of these are just uh, absolutely stunning. They're, they're like, like we would equate it with totem poles, um, but they're, they're not meant to last. It's part of the Buddhist practice to create these, um, these spiritual, these sculptural pieces that will eventually dissipate because, mm-hmm. of course, that's the tenet of, Buddha, of Buddhism that, you know, things do not last forever. Right. Same, same with the sand mandala. Right. Ultimately, yeah, they exactly. sweep it away and erase yeah, it incredible. and scatter it. Yeah, incredible detail like that. Right. It's really mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. The, that's sort of the ultimate Tibetan concept, right? This incredibly painstaking <laughs> yeah. thing. I mean, these butter sculptures, are, we're not, I don't think we could possibly mm. convey to anybody how elaborate and painstaking oh, yeah. they are. Something that yeah. takes a lot of work to do. Yeah. Uh, same with the mandalas. And then you just, it's gone. There's a, there is a film called Torma. Yeah. Uh, that, that tells you all about it and shows you what you know what we're talking about here. Really beautiful. Now, some of this has to do with butter probably being imbued a little bit with some sacramental or, or sacrosanct ideas, right? There's a way in which butter and religion connect. Butter's in the Bible, for example. Mm. Yeah, butter's in the first meal yeah. uh, uh, that's cited in the Bible because Abraham was serving a meal to three people he thought were the angels. So it's mentioned there. Um, it's also was used by the Vedic Aryans. These are the ancestors of modern day Hindus. Um, and they worshiped a fire god named Agni. And they would take butter, probably in the form of ghee. So that's melted, clarified mm-hmm. butter. And they would sprinkle it on the flames so that they would crackle and dance and leap. And all the while they would be reciting verses to Agni, the fire god. I actually have some of these verses in my book, people want to recreate mm. that ritual. <laughs> so that's one. Also, um, if we look way back, 2500 BC, the Sumerians also used to bring butter uh, as a, a gift to their goddess Inanna. They would bring it to the temple because Inanna was married to a mythical dairy shepherd. And the people wanted to help this shepherd, her husband, keep her. Um, in, in dairy riches, which was, was the promise he made to her, that she would always have lots of dairy because she loved it. So people would regularly bring butter to the temples in, in, um, in Samaria. Um, some of this is uh, con, uh, connected somehow or other to ritualistic ideas about fecundity uh, for a whole bunch of I- reasons, mm-hmm. including, as you Fertility. Yeah, point right. out in the book, mm-hmm. if you even think about sort of how butter is made, the physical process uh, and by which butter is made, 
Uh, I don't need to. Think, I don't think I need to put a point on that one. You get the idea. There's like an obvious connection <laughs> right away uh, mm-hmm. as to wh- why that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we should actually mention one other group of people who, who clearly had some kind of relationship to butter that was probably votive in nature, and that would be uh, druids inhabiting mm. uh, Ireland and, and and other northern European areas like that, where there are bogs. Right? Yes. Tell, tell us about bog butter. Yeah, bog butter. So these are batches of butter that are either packed into a wooden cask or sometimes wrapped in linen, sometimes in moss. And these were buried in the bog over millennia. So up to, up to the present day, we have found about 450 samples of bog butter that have been unearthed as, as men are um, harvesting the peat in mm-hmm. Ireland. So it's pretty much by accident that we find these. And so what we have believed for a long time was that the ancient peoples who, who buried these um, butters did it to preserve the butter because, of course, the peat is, is great for preserving just about anything. Mm-hmm. It's very acidic. It's anaerobic. It's cool. Uh, you can actually put bodies in there and they'll be preserved for a very long time. So we we think that part of the reason butter was packed and buried in the bog was preservation. But what's interesting, I found in my research that they've kind of mapped out where they found all these hundreds of, of samples of bog butter. And they correlate with these uh, s- kind of sacred boundaries in the in the sort of elemental world, the so-called fairy world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're pretty certain that Many of these bog butters were offerings to the elementals, to the fairies, to appease them because, of course, the fairies were responsible for all kinds of mischief in people's lives. Right. I'd just like to tell you, Elaine, that it's the policy of our show that we don't put air quotes around fairy world or say <laughs> – and we don't say so-called fairy world. We're okay, right. Show. Good. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, it seems – I mean, the fact that these can be found suggests that they had a vote of purpose because otherwise – I mean, otherwise you'd have a mm. druid brand of butter called I forgot where I put my butter. But people <laughs> people don't forget where they put their butter. It's too valuable. Uh, so chances are they exactly. just ne- intended it for it to be Absolutely. never. Okay, we're going to sp- we speed ahead to mm. uh, pre-Renaissance, Renaissance. We're starting to see there representations of women. Um, <clears throat> there's a way in which this is sort of now connected to a certain kind uh, of femininity, uh, both in mm-hmm. art, poetry, everything like that. So say, mm-hmm. say a little about that. Well, I do have, first of all, I just want to back up a yeah, yeah. tiny bit to say that my book has 10 chapters and only one of them, the 10th, mm-hmm. is about the culinary right. value of butter, which is not to diminish that at all, but yeah. but to, you know, to give people a sense of the scope of butter's history. So yes, I, I spent a lot of time Reading about the life of dairy maids, mm-hmm. um, I was astonished, actually, first off, to find out that women really founded the dairy world um, because universally it was taboo for men to have anything to do with dairying, with, with the cows, with milking, with processing milk. That was all associated closely with birth and fertility and lactation. It was very much a female domain, unlike it is today. So that was pretty remarkable in itself. And, you know, then uh, as I learned more about how these women lived and how they worked, and of course, you know, they worked very hard. They had cows they had to milk every single day and process that milk every day because, of course, there was no refrigeration and things, you know, had to move along. 
But um, so it was arduous work, but because it was their domain and they controlled it, and men honestly didn't really understand how you could take liquid milk, bring it into the creamery, and it comes out in solid form later. They didn't really understand this transformation until men invaded the dairy around you know the 1800s. Um, but so women had quite a measure of status and respect, dairy women in particular based on their skill and based on the fact that the butter and cheese that they made was very valuable. Uh, so this this was something um, that women took a lot of pride in. You can see that when you, when you look at some of the butter molds, the exquisite, beautiful butter molds that women used to use to market their butter better. You know, it was um, a degree of entrepreneurship that was unusual back in the day. Also, butter is something that lends itself, although we don't m- maybe think about that that much these days, mm. to connoisseurship in the sense that, mm. like wine, it has a terroir, right? There's yes. a way in which that one, even, yes. mm-hmm. I mean, that one person's butter output at the level you're talking about mm. in that time of history would be, would taste and look and feel a little bit different from somebody else's. Oh, yes, very much so, because it was much harder to make butter then without refrigeration, without these sanitation controls that we have today um, to get a pure, clean, fresh, beautiful butter. Um, well, it would have all been cultured actually back in the day. It mm. wasn't really fresh, fresh butter. Um, it would have been cultured butter. So, yeah, no, there was quite a lot of skill involved in, in making a beautiful butter. Yeah. I want to come back to the cultured butter thing, but probably maybe towards yeah. the end of the show when mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, artisanal butter, because I, th- I think that's uh, an important thing. So um, mm. just because it's so um, classically uh, a French bourbon excess, we should talk about uh, Marie Antoinette's uh, dress up and play buttermaid mm-hmm. situation. What, what was going on there? What was that? <laughs> Yeah, well, at Versailles, she had she had a, a little village built, a, a recreation of a you know beautiful country village on the grounds of Versailles called Hameau, and within that tiny village, she had what's called a uh, laiterie d'agrément, a pleasure dairy. Mm-hmm. There was actually two dairies, so the pleasure dairy was where she would go to sort of make believe. She was a dairy maid along with her, her, all her ladies-in-waiting. And it was, you know, sort of their little dairy playhouse, although quite elaborate. I mean, it was marble fixtures and, and gold and porcelain uh, tools, really quite exquisite. Um, but right beside that, there was a practical dairy where the actual real dairy women made the things that would then be served in the pleasure dairy. So this was really an ornament as part of her, you know, her grounds, her garden. But it was a place she really liked to gather, I think, because she felt, you know, again, the dairy is a female domain. This yeah. is this represents her identity. It represents uh, power for women, not her per yeah. se. But, you know, that it would was be my female. guess because yeah. of all the things that you said before right. about why men were almost a little afraid of the dairy realm. Yeah, yeah. But that's because power re- re- could mm-hmm. reside there yes. and, and it was connected to all these sort of basic mm-hmm. um, female functions. So you don't want to become so rarefied if you're Marie Antoinette that you have no connection yes. to this very visceral realm of butter and mm-hmm. milk, right? And yet she was criticized for this pleasure dairy and the second one that was built for her, which she actually didn't get to enjoy because of the French Revolution. But uh, but she was criticized um because it wasn't real world and it was extravagant and it, and it didn't reflect the true nature of, of hardworking dairy people. Whereas 
Caterina de' Medici, 200 years early, she also had a pleasure dairy. But she, for in her case, people thought it represented her stewardship of the land, and mm-hmm. they, they lauded the fact that she had it. So it was interesting. Marie Antoinette was, um, was just not liked. Right. I think Steve Mnuchin and his wife are starting a pleasure dairy, but I, I don't have that. Uh, that's not a solid news item. Um, so very quickly, we're going to go into break and we're going to talk uh, about another aspect of all this. But before we do, I mean, we have to sort of do the men ruin everything moment where the Industrial Revolution happens. And uh, first of all, men take this thing from women that has been their province for a long time, Mm -hmm. but they don't preserve a lot of the qualities that we're talking about. No, no. In fact, they dismissed so much of just the the knowledge that women had in their their fingertips, in their senses. They just, they wanted to um, systematically go through the process, you know, and very much um, make it a business and not an art as Mm -hmm. women had made it for so many years, for so long. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I was going to bring wait for the artisanal part, but I, I'm going to bring it up now. So mm-hmm. there's this Swiss theorist that I'm uh, obsessed with named Clotaire Rapai, who um, got gets hired occasionally, used to get hired by big companies to try to help them market their products to people who never bought them before. And and one of the things that he eventually had to tell the craft people, mm-hmm. and this is about cheese, but I'm betting it the truth is, the truth is about butter, is that. Europeans, specifically the French, but Europeans probably in general in Western Europe, um, you know, they they see cheese. Americans tend to like things to be sterile Mm -hmm. and inert (laughs) and kind (laughs) of dead (laughs) when you eat it, you know, whereas Europeans, when they think about cheese, and I'm sure about butter too, see it as kind of alive. I mean, a culture butter, it is alive. You know, it's alive. You put it on the table. It sits on the table for a while. Mm, It's like a little little member of the family. (laughs) The cat walks across it. You know, it's fine. You know, it's all sort of... It's part of your biome almost, right? So, yes. and and I'm assuming that that's one of the things that <clears throat> gradually got lost, at least uh, in in the in the real fast paced industrialization of butter eventually, particularly in the U.S. Yeah. Not as much as you said in Europe because they had an appreciation, and they obviously they still do. Um, but we're just kind of rediscovering that aspect of of food, the aliveness of food that can. Right, that can be really right. actually good for us and also delicious. Right, no, some of us are anyway. Yes, um, and meanwhile, of course, mm-hmm. as we as we're having this conversation, I haven't heard any late breaking bulletins about this, but France, last I knew, was <clears throat> in the grip of at least a butter panic, if not a butter shortage, a yes. burr out, as they say. Right. Yes, yes. I actually um, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about that um, because on the surface it looks like a price war, and it very much. It very much is um, between the distributors and the retailers in France. Mm-hmm. And part of why you saw so many empty sh- I mean, pictures of sh- empty shelves of in France, no butter, um, was because people knew this was coming, this conflict mm-hmm. and this standoff, and they rushed to the store and bought right. butter. So there actually is butter in France. There was butter <laughs> at the time. But the retailers refused to pay the price that the distributors wanted to pay, mm-hmm. uh, wanted them to pay, because now the distributors can get a lot more for their butter in the global market. You right. know, China wants butter now, and Saudi Arabia wants butter. All these places that have not been butter countries ever are are discovering how fabulous it is. Um, so, so prices have gone up in France. Um, and my piece actually was about tied into actually uh, climate change and how that has an impact on mm-hmm. butter and butter prices. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. All right, so we're talking about butter right now with uh, Elaine Kostrova. Now we're going to add another uh, voice to our conversation. Uh, we're going to turn our gaze to the Midwest, to specifically Wisconsin, where if the Green Bay Packers fans were not cheese heads, they would probably probably be butter heads. Uh, but butter on your head, I don't know. Somehow or other, it's a uh, stickier. Put Nepal. Yeah. They put butter on they their put head. Butter in Nepal. Their heads? Okay. Yeah. So that's apparently the fans of Nepal's mm-hmm. classic football team. Uh, <laughs> they do that. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about the margarine wars, too. We will take a break and we will come back. You'll squish it between your fingers and squish it between your toes. I'm talking butter. What is your area of expertise? Well, I can tell the difference between butter and I can't believe it's not butter. No, you can't, Mr. Simpson. No one can. Well, that may or may not be true. But um, so we're talking about butter right now. This is our whole show. This is kind of a salute to butter. Elaine Kostrova is with me here in studio. She's the author of Butter. A history. A rich history. A rich history. Oh, yes, a rich history. Oh, I'm missing that part. A rich history. Uh, and she is a former pastry student at Culinary Institute of America, a former test kitchen editor at Country Living Magazine. Uh, now joining us by, well, actually, before we get to Doug, um, you're going to meet the person who, like, if there were a Pulitzer specifically given out in margarine journalism, uh, would win every year, basically, for many, many years. Uh, but before we get there, let's just talk about how margarine uh, arrives on the scene. And, Elaine, it does have something to do with Napoleon, as so many things do. Well, Napoleon Third. Napoleon Third. Yes. Okay. So we're talking about uh, around the 1860s here. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had an army, of course, and he wanted uh, a cheaper substitute to f- uh, than butter to mm-hmm. feed his army, something cheaper t- and also something that traveled well for his army. He was actually planning a battle. Um, and so he put out word of a contest, a prize for someone who could cr- who could figure out um, a butter substitute for his troops. And a chemist came along and um, produced this mixture of beef fat and milk and a little bit of salt and food coloring. And uh, that was actually the origins of, of the first margarine. So he, he won the prize and it was fairly successful, although the troops ended up not going to Prussia, not going to war after all. But we were left with uh, this foundational substance <laughs> that became margarine. Not, nothing like the margarine today, of course, which is made with vegetable oil. But, uh, but that's really how it got its start. All right. So <coughs> now, now we do add uh, Doug Moe, a Wisconsin-based author and journalist who has written for newspapers and magazines for almost 40 years. Uh, today is a very tough day in Wisconsin. The Packers have been mathematically eliminated from playoff contention. Uh, so he's very brave to come on the show today. You could just be lying on the floor in a fetal position with everybody else in Wisconsin. Um, so, um, so Doug, welcome to the show. So uh, in, in Wisconsin, which is obviously a, a heralded dairy state, um, margarine, at least, well, margarine for quite some time has been regarded as sort of a, a nefarious interloper. What did Wisconsin do about that? Well, they, uh, I mean, dating back to the 1800s, it was uh, it was actually illegal to uh, to sell margarine in Wisconsin, and uh, that sort of culminated in the uh, in the 1960s when some more enlightened, if you would, legislators decided to to try to pass a bill that would 
uh, allow it. And um, one in particular uh, state senator um, was just up in arms and, and, and considered this a, a travesty that they would even think about uh, allowing margarine sales here. Um, and so there then came a, an instance of him trying it uh, in, the, in the Capitol. But before that happened, there was actually, uh, you know, contraband. Um, there would be people would actually make runs across the state line to, to Minnesota or Illinois and uh, and come back with with margarine. Right. And, it, and, 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 you know, people got busted. Right. Um, I, wrote, I wrote a column about it back in uh, early in the 20th century. A guy from the uh, city of Janesville here in Wisconsin got 18 months in federal prison for selling it. That was A.E. A, a. Graham. And I feel like that must have been hard to be in prison and people say, what are you in for? You know, <laughs> running you margarine? Know, right. You know, if if I was inclined to, to cut these folks any slack, which I'm not, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would make some sort of argument of like you met, you guys were talking about France earlier, mm-hmm. um, and and how you know to make wine you have to be called a certain kind of wine you have to do it right. in a certain way or down in Kentucky I think the same for sour mash or bourbon so um, you know I think I think that that was part of it because clearly dairy is huge here um, but it, it got to the point of being ridiculous you know but that never stopped. The legislature. <laughs> so, yeah, so you've had a form of prohibition there. Um, I think it was tried a little bit maybe in other parts of the country. I mean, look, it makes sense that you can't sell yellow oleomargarine and say it's butter. That's right. fraud. Mm-hmm. But it's prohibiting the existence of it. And so, Elaine, you know, the iron, one of the ironies of margarine, I think, is that everything everything we sort of thought was good for us is probably we were probably mistaken about. So back when it was made out of beef fat mm. was probably, probably better for better us than this. For us. Yeah, 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 that's the irony of yeah, moving toward vegetable oils, which sounds so benign, but when you hydrogenate those vegetable oils and change their f- natural fat structure, you you create trans fats and we all know that's a very bad thing. Well, the, I mean, the other reason that margarine, Elaine, got a foothold was World War II, right? Where, yes. first of all— Butter shortages, yeah. right. Yeah, there were, you know, there were not as many men to, to work the farms, so there was less dairy production, and what butter there was generally went to the army. So there was a lot of rationing of butter, and margarine, actually, as well. Um, people had ration coupons for both of those things, and butter was harder to come by than margarine then sure. Um, and, you know, Doug, we have to go back to that um, epic moment that you were referring to uh, in the in the Wisconsin legislature, where there really was a challenge to one of the great prohibitionists, one of the great anti-margarine prohibitionists, uh, a state senator, who was blindfolded and challenged to tell the difference. And what did happen on that day? Yeah, his name was Gordon Roselip, and, and he was uh, infamous in the state, very conservative guy. He had... Uh, he had resisted a bridge being built um, from Iowa across a river from Iowa to Wisconsin, saying that it would it would help keep the Russians out if uh, if they didn't build the bridge. So that was sort of his <laughs> mindset. Um, but anyway, yeah, he he, uh, he said he he said oleo margin was tasted awful and was greasy and this and that. And so they organized a test for him, and uh, you can just imagine the drumroll drumroll sort of thing. And and he tastes it, and uh, he says that's oleo. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it was butter. Mm-hmm. Um, he had he, he right. had blown it, um, and it wasn't until until years later I, I tracked down mm-hmm. his daughter when I was writing about this, uh, you know, six or seven years ago, 
and it turned out that there that the Roselip family that li- they lived in Southwest Wisconsin had actually gone across the border surreptitiously, not told the patriarch because his he weighed two two hundred and seventy pounds, and they were worried about it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh wow! And sure enough, they brought margarine back and served it to him and said it was butter. So when he stood up in the state capitol and and you know made his identification for what he had been eating, he was right. Right. Uh, he had thought, right. Yeah. He'd been yeah. duped for a while. Yeah. So if it strikes you that this might make a really good movie, something like this, <laughs> something would be as crazy as this. Well, I we have to tell you that there is a movie called Margarine Wars, a 2011 comedy by David Rich, Rich about a kosher Jew who dupes a Swedish dairy farmer into smuggling illegal margarine into butter-sensitive Wisconsin. Uh, the Sheriff played by Gene Marola. I think you hear him in this scene is confronting a smuggler when he sees margarine <laughs> leaking from the trunk. You see that sign? You're in Wisconsin now. And if I'm not mistaken, this stuff leaking from the trunk of your car is that non-utter butter or what you Illinoisans call margarine. And margarine is illegal here in Wisconsin. Why? It's full of that mono or mono diclicarides. And that's just one molecule away from plastic. And you know what's in diclicarides? Insects! And you know where butter comes from? Cows. Cows are good. Insects are bad. We got a lot of cows here. We got so much butter, it's coming out of our... Well, let's just say we got a lot of butter. All right. So uh, that's... that's uh, I, I don't even know what to, to say after that. Except that, Doug... You know, we, we might think that all of this madness is over, but it's not entirely over, over. For example, there's a woman who still crosses the state line to get Kerrygold butter, which comes from Ireland. I mean, how can that be in 2017 that, that you'd have to cross state lines to get some kind of forbidden butter? Well, because there's a law in the books that uh, you can't sell uh, butter uh, manufactured out of the United States. So the Irish butter is contraband here. Right. It has to be graded uh, through a U.S. process, right? It has to go through a yeah, grading? That, yeah, I believe that's it. Um, and again, I think I think it just there's there's history there and the fact that the legislature, whenever something comes up to overturn some of this stuff, uh, they say we got more important things to do. Um, so I, I think that's the reason. Yeah. Um, it does make us look kind of silly. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Well, I, I just want to. Yeah, go ahead. Elaine. I just want to add that you know there was a ninety-year-long margarine butter battle in the legislatures, and uh, you know in 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 many states. So it wasn't just Wisconsin. Wisconsin right. has held on, but there were many other states who were uh, criminalizing margarine and uh, the manufacture of it. And, you know, they, the margarine producers tried to work around so many of these, you know, restrictions. Uh, color was the big thing, right? And mm-hmm. it was interesting on my book tour how many Americans remember, these are older Americans, remember getting white oleo in a, in a plastic package with a little capsule of yellow. But then they would <laughs> squeeze, that was usually their job if they were, the, you know, the kids in the family, squeeze that capsule of yellow into this white substance and the kids really thought they were making butter. Then yeah. I thought that was butter, but it was actually that's the only way they could sell the margarine, so it didn't look anything like butter. And, and Doug, there's still a law in restaurants in Wisconsin, right? I mean, I guess you can ask for margarine to be brought, but otherwise, what goes on the table has to be butter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and again, that has that was I believe tried to. There was some movement in the legislature five or six years ago to 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 change that, and and it died. Um, so you can get it margarine, but you, yeah, you're right. You have to ask for it. All right. Well, 
you know, the Packers offensive line has to eat something, I guess. So, um, all right, Doug Moe, so great to talk to you. We're going to keep talking about butter here. Doug Moe is a journalist in Wisconsin. He is by default, by he's absolutely the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for uh, margarine and, and butter coverage. Uh, many years running now. Uh, so we're lucky to get him. Aline and I are going to take a little break here. So are you. We've got some things to tell you during the break, however, so don't stop listening. And then we're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about the resurgence of, for want of a better word, artisanal butter. Every ever put butter on a pop tart. If you haven't, then I think you should. Everybody, come along with us. Have you ever put butter on a pop tart? It's so freaking good. Yeah. Have you ever put butter on a if you haven't, then I think you should. Butter is used in so many religions, but only one religion uses cottage cheese as a sacrament. That would be Episcopalianism. Today's show was produced by Betsy Butter Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish likes a pat on the back. Part of Bill Curry was played by Julia Child. Now that we've clarified butter, get ready for a show about which sex is in the driver's seat of evolution. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, that's coming up. Uh, we're working on another show, another Betsy Kaplan show. This is about sort of n- not necessarily new thinking about Darwinism, but uh, maybe a wrinkle on Darwinism that you haven't heard uh, about which uh, whether males or females are really in the driver's seat. All right. We're talking about butter right now. And we just mentioned Julia Child. So, Wolfie, I think it's maybe important to um, hear Julia Child. Now this is not a recipe for when you're planning to diet, because it has to have a lot of butter in the bottom of the pan. Don't use any substitutes, because butter is better. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're still with uh, Elaine Kosrova. Her book is Butter, A Rich History, uh, and she's here with me in studio. In just a moment, you're going to meet the president of Vermont Creamery, uh, who is making butter the old-fashioned way. Um, but before we do that, one thing we didn't say during the margarine conversation is that some of all this was because of a notion that people had that butter was some kind of major contributor to heart disease, that butter was mm. something that we needed to avoid, Julia Child notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you point out, I, I, I think it's not it's hard for me, not having followed this that closely, to understand, as you point out, the degree to which butter is kind of off the hook about that these days. Yes, because saturated fat is coming off the hook. Mm. It's really really about the saturated fat that's in butter. That's, that's called... Um, been the substance thought to be responsible for heart disease, and you know this is this goes back to a theory, a scientific theory that was never actually proven in the '60s and the '70s. But because it intuitively made so much sense, it's been such an easy sell for for policymakers, for the public, to believe that oh yeah, if I eat fat and solid fat, you know it it, it becomes solid fat on my body, but body or in my arteries. So, so you know, it's very much a part of our culture to be uh, afraid of any solid fat. And the science is changing radically and quickly on this. We, you know, we're understanding actually that the fat in your arteries can come from triglycerides that are the result of eating a lot of sugar mm-hmm. and a lot of carbohydrates. Um, and at the time, you know, when the anti-fat theory really got going in the 70s and there was quite a lot of heart disease, no one was looking at the fact that people were eating a lot of margarine mm-hmm. with, with trans fats. 
Um, they there was more smoking, there was more stress, there was more sugar in the diet. There were all these other factors that now we know um, are at least partly to blame for heart disease. Uh, but at the time, they just focused on one single thing, saturated fat. And so butter was demonized, of course, red meat as well. Mm-hmm. So um, butter is off the hook a little bit, uh, and also people, as they are turning their attention to things that are made a little bit more carefully. We talked a, a few segments ago about that also, the sense of things that are um, alive rather than dead. Uh, people are being attracted back to uh, a kind of butter that seems a little bit more like the European kinds, and uh, a kind that's more alive than dead. So that uh, is a good way to usher in uh, Adeline Druert, a president of Vermont, Vermont Creamery. Uh, she brings her knowledge of butter making to Vermont from her home country of France, uh, which, where they are experiencing sort of a fake butter shortage, which we already talked about. So um, first of all, welcome to our conversation, Adeline. Thank you. Good afternoon, Colin and Elaine. So um, tell us uh, how butter is made uh, the way that you make it. Describe the process. Absolutely. Uh, well, first, thank you for inviting us in the show. We, we love talking about cheese, and we certainly love talking about butter. Um, the way we make our butter at Vermont Creamery is, uh, I would call it the, the traditional way, the way um, I've learned how to make it in France which is uh, we receive fresh, high-fat cream from a local co-op. Then we pasteurize this cream, um, like all, all butter manufactured um, in, the, in the U.S. And then we um, start a very critical process called, we call it maturation, which is uh, adding a special um, selection of starter cultures to the cream and letting those starter culture over time uh, produce compounds, flavors. Uh, and that stage of maturation takes about 18 to 20 hours. So it's a, it's a very long, long time. But the key here is to take, to take the time to have enough, enough flavor to be brilled. So then when we turn then the cream into butter, um, we have this um, aromatic flavors, hazelnut uh, taste that have been developed in the butter. Um, so yeah, maturation of the cream and then slowly churn um, because our butter is 86% butter fat. So it's a, it's a higher fat content than most of the um, American butter. So it takes a longer time for it to, to reach this high fat. This seems like uh, a consistent theme in cooking and thinking about food these days that obviously mass-produced food has to be made as quickly as possible so you can make as much of it as possible so you can get it to as many people as possible. What you're describing is a process which simply requires time, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's like I like to use the analogy of winemaking, um, you know, and, and aging wine in barrel for a long amount of time to have time uh, allow the flavor to be de- developed in the wine. It's for us. It's the same. It's the same for culturing the cream. So um, Elaine is sitting here. I know that you've got three or four different kinds of butter uh, in your kitchen right now. So Elaine, tell tell us about what kinds of butter you're using these days. Well, uh, just okay. I have a sheep butter mm-hmm. uh, that was I did a tasting not that long ago. So um, uh, that's my most curious butter I have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tastes very sheepy, but um, it's it's actually quite nice when I mix it with standard butter. Um, it, it gives it a sort of little gaminess that that's nice. Um, I also have uh, some Procédant butter that is mm-hmm. the big butter from France. Yeah. Um, 
I do like that butter for making pastry. Mm. Um, and I have organic Valley butter. I, should I be mentioning all these brands? Is that know. okay? We don't care. <laughs> um, I like organic Valley butter. And um, I often do have Vermont Creamery butter in my fridge uh, because it's my favorite table butter. I really like Adeline's butter to, for, for the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would say, yeah, it's great for baking too, but I really like it on the table. Well, you know, Adeline, one thing that um, if you cook, um, and particularly if you saute, uh, some of us who do a lot of sautéing, well, olive oil is a little bit more attractive to us because we feel as though the butter is going to smoke and burn uh, very quickly. Is your butter different that way? What's it like cooking with this more sort of genuine uh, historic kind of butter? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, um, sautéing in a high-fat butter is um, is is a great way to be able to work your food that you are trying to, to cook and caramelize um, and, and have the, the flavor of the butter um, in, into the food without having it turning uh, brown. So high-fat butter allows you to be able to, to, to saute for a much longer amount of time without, without burning not only the, the fat but also the, the food. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a great, uh, it's a great cooking butter, uh, especially for this kind of application. You know, I was saying to Elaine, um, Adeline, that um, I go to a lot of farmer's markets around Connecticut, and I very, very rarely see any kind of small batch or artisanal butter. I don't know whether it's because it's so labor-intense, but, I mean, for every 50 farms or 30 farms making cheese, there's maybe one farm making butter. Why is that? Why is, why is butter not catching up with cheese in quite that way? Um, I... Probably because of the 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 yield throughout the the, the supply chain. So for each uh, each you know pounds of cream, you get a ha- you're gonna have um, you know it takes ten pounds of milk, and then you have nine pounds of skim that you need to do something with it, mm-hmm. and then one pound of cream gives you half a pound of butter. So when you think of um, you know the the product, um, how you start with milk, then you need to turn it into cream and have to figure out what to do with the skim milk, and then from this cream you're gonna have to make butter out of it, and only half of your volume is gonna be butter, and then you have to do something with the buttermilk. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, so Adeline Duart, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us, the president of v- Vermont Creamery. Um, we have just a few minutes left with Elaine uh, uh, Kosrova. Her book is Butter, A Rich History. So one of the great things about writing a book like this one is you've got a terrific excuse to travel to all kinds of in- interesting places mm-hmm. and see what else people do. So you, you did experience, you, you were just talking about sheep butter in your refrigerator, but you've mm-hmm. been to Bhutan. You've been to Italy where the yak and the water buffalo mm-hmm. um, contribute. Well, to butter, right? I went to India actually. Did I, to, did I say Italy? You said Italy. Yeah. yeah, I've been to Italy too. I have jet lag, um, but it's not it's not much of a um, butter country yeah. yet. No, I've been to Bhutan. I really wanted to see in my travels sort of the state of butter in the 21st century, mm-hmm. the extremes, uh, which I knew were there, um, but also experience that. And going to Bhutan was really like stepping back in time. Yeah. I mean, they make yak butter the same exact way they did mm-hmm. a thousand years ago. I mean. The only difference is people wear fleece now. Like yeah. it, it, it was remarkable to see. And it's still like the women are doing all the milking. The women do all the processing. Um, in India, I really wanted to experience um, water buffalo butter 
Because, again, this is one of the really ancient butters before cows were on the scene. And so I went to a tiny village in the north and um, got to be with a family who they keep a couple of water buffaloes. And, you know, the woman, they take the milk, actually. They don't, there's no skimming off the cream. They take a whole milk and they um, inoculate it with bacteria like to make yogurt. So Mm -hmm. they're basically taking yesterday's yogurt. They put some in the whole milk and leave it overnight. It becomes this most delicious yogurt I've ever had. Mm. You know how you know how water buffalo um, mozzarella is so much better than regular mozzarella. You know buffalo mozzarella. Oh, buffalo mozzarella. Bu- yeah. Buffalo mozzarella. Yeah. Um, so in the same way that this yogurt is is fantastic, but they actually churn this whole milk yogurt uh, to make their buffalo butter. Uh, their, yeah, their buffalo butter. So that's what I got to see and try with a very unusual style of churning in India, very different than the rest of the world. Um, and that particular butter was really delicious. It was very. We're pretty much going to stop here. We're almost mm-hmm. out of time, although mm-hmm. there's so much more to say. Although we should, as you're alluding to, mm-hmm. yak, water buffalo, mm-hmm. sheep, goat, camel, reindeer, yeah, uh, anything yeah. that gives milk, people try to make butter out of it, right? <clears throat> pretty much. Uh, pretty much. Not not like human milk doesn't make good <laughs> butter. <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, you you know these ruminants. the The category of ruminant animals is pretty big, and they can give you uh, butter. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that human milk doesn't make good <laughs> butter because then Gwyneth Paltrow would be selling it on Goop. <laughs> um, talk about Goop. Uh, anyway, uh, we've been talking. So lucky to have uh, Elaine Kostarova here. Her book is Butter: A Rich History. I am confident in saying that we have only, as you might say, skimmed the surface of this topic. If you want to know a lot more about butter, a lot of really interesting things about butter, you should get this book. Or better yet, give it to the butterphilic person in your family as a holiday present. Butter, a rich history by Elaine Kosrova. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, whose childhood nickname was Butter, actually. Uh, And thanks to her for doing that. We've got a very different kind of show tomorrow, but then that's the way we operate. Stand with me now. Butter. Butter. Butter makes it better, boy. Time to get it turning. Butter. Butter. This butter's a breeze. Hey, Pants. Yeah? Did you hear the rumor about butter? No. Never mind. I better not spread it. That joke, I can't believe it's not better. Yeah, it was only margarine only good. Yeah, I've heard butter. <laughs>